Just a quick little kind of update a little bit about how God has worked in our life over the years. Uh, Sandy and I grew up in uh, homes that were uh, hourly religious. We were um, generational Lutherans, both of us. Uh, my family moved to Bloomington, Minnesota at the age of 12 in 1967. Uh, Sandy and I went to the same high school, went to the same Lutheran church, loved singing a church choir. That's how I met her. My mom made me call her to, to date her, and so I thank my mother for that. Because all guys are cowards, right? Go call her. This little five foot two mother. Go call her. And we ran up. The, I ran up the stairs, and uh, picked up the uh, the avocado phone, <laughs> and was petrified. Because what if she says no, and we're done? But she said yes, and so we were there. We engaged and married later, and uh, went to the University of Minnesota, uh, and commuted there from our home in Bloomington, and got an engineering degree and a business degree. And she helped put me through school, and we moved to Washington State to work on a hydroelectric plant in the Columbia River, and from there to Ketchikan, Alaska, to work on a remote site. Uh, my wife is adventurous, and so we lived in a remote job site and lived there with 150 men building a hydro plant there. And to make a long story short, God put people in our life to bring us the gospel. A couple uh, who knew the Lord, and they were in our Lutheran church that hadn't left yet, uh, invite us to do a Bible study with them, and that just pricked our hearts. Didn't get it yet, but God was working. And a preacher in Ketchikan, Alaska, knocked on our door, invited us to go to a Baptist church, and we went. And through the process, we became to understand the gospel and talk ourselves in the fact that we had actually accepted Christ when we really didn't, but we just buried that uh, that doubt. But through the time, God gave us a sensitivity to His Word, an interest in His Word, and God impressed upon my heart to to quit my career and and go to Bible school, and God, you had a missionary couple from this state, Chuck and Irene Broquet, were up there, heading up to Iliamna, and God used them to influence us to go to faith. It was just the way they lived. And if that's what comes out of faith, that's where we're going. That was the impact of their life. That's why we came to Iowa. So we came to Iowa, worked at UPS, and uh, in the process of joining a local church, see, no one had ever asked us, Have you, are you sure you're going to heaven? They just assumed. Uh, we, our life was kind of a clean life to some degree, moral people, kind of like Cornelius, had a heart for God and a heart for the things of God, but not, not saved. And no one ever asked us if we knew for sure we were going to heaven. So we went forward during a, a church service on, as, as school was starting at Faith, and we uh, went up to, go, to join the church, and they took us into the pastor's office, and a deacon sat us down. He said, I don't care if you're going to Bible college. Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? No one ever asked us that question. And I lied and said, yes. I didn't want to admit that. I mean, going to Bible school, wrote on my little application, too humbling. So I lied, and now I'm really convicted. All that doubt we suppressed came to the surface that I had, that I had never come to Christ, and I'd actually lied to someone about doing it. And, and, and God's providence that next day was missions conference at faith. And, and so every day our testimonies of conversion, and I thought, I don't have that. I have never come to Christ. I've understood it. I think grasped, but I've never called upon him to save me. And I was miserable. And God used a preacher that Wednesday morning to bring the word of God from Luke chapter 5 about Peter and the, the big draft of fish and Lord, I am a sinful man, and that just pricked my heart. Not an evangelistic verse, but it worked for me. 
And I went home, and we lived in Alleman, and I bowed my knees and put my trust in Christ and was wonderfully born again by the grace of God. And Sandy, so we, we had planned to meet with the deacons that evening on Wednesday to share our testament. Now I told them what happened that day. Now I could tell them I was born again that day. And it took a little bit of time, and we met before church started that evening, and uh, we kind of ran out of time. And so I said, this is wonderful. We'll schedule a baptism, and uh, we're good. And they never asked her her story. Now, ours are kind of connected but she hadn't yet called upon Christ to save her. And she's kind of a happy person. And she was miserable that day. I'm full of joy and rejoicing of the relief of having the guilt of sin gone. And she is miserable. And you can see it on her face. But they never asked her her story. We almost fell through the cracks again. But, but now I'm understanding they never asked her. So I was working at UPS and Next day, Thursday, I thought, I've got to talk to her. I've got to be sure. So before I went to work at UPS that next day at about 10 o'clock at night, I said, honey, we need to have a talk. She said, what? I said, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And she said, what do you think? With all my evangelistic training, which was none, like the woman at the well, she left her water pot and she went and told people, God told me what to tell her. I said, if you have to ask me if it's true or not, it isn't. She said, you're right. She bowed her head, trusted Christ, and I kissed her and went to work. And that's how we came to Christ. And God draws people to himself. God uses people along the way to bring us the gospel. And God opens our heart and saves us for his glory. And so what is your story today? Who could you invest in today? Maybe you've never come to Christ yourself. Who is maybe slipping through the crafts you've assumed that they know Christ, but maybe they don't? So that's how God brought to himself. So we stayed at faith, and God trained us for the ministry, still felt called to preach, went out on uh, preaching assignments from the college, and ended up preaching in South Des Moines. They invited me to come back each week, and that led to me like to be our pastor. So with a year of school left to go, I became the pastor of Bethany Baptist Church, and that was exciting and terrifying at the same time. God gave us five good years of ministry. The church grew. People came to Christ. College students came back. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot on the south side of Des Moines. And God blessed our ministry. It was at this camp in the fall of the summer of 1990 that we were not sure if that's where we should stay for a long period of time. So we were open to God's leading, and I was here speaking at camp, something like this, at a family camp, I think even about the family, and some people from Carroll, Iowa were here, and we connected, and uh, that led to us going to Carroll, Iowa to pastor Faith Baptist Church for almost 24 years. We were there a long time. You see kids grow up and get married and go off and serve the Lord. So we were grateful for 24 years of ministry and faith. And we're minding our own business, you know, out there in West Central Iowa, and, join the, and, then, and then someone gives me a call and says, do you? And that's when that conversation began and, and began to meddle in my life. And then Gary says, you need to, and he was relentless. You need to be thinking, okay, I didn't really like him for a couple of times. I would almost avoid him at retreats. But God was using him. And that led to us accepting the call to be set apart for this work. And 
Acts, Acts 13 is significant. It says, as they ministered, the Spirit of God said, set them apart the work that I have called them to. And so they fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, and sent them away. And so when I told our local church in March of that year that God was leading us to leave 24 years of ministry to do this, that was a tough morning. And we were convinced that God was in it, but in the midst of the tears, they agreed with what we thought God was doing. In a sense, they realized that God had set us apart, and as we announced it that morning, uh, one of the older gals in our church that had been with us, she seemed like the mom of all us guys playing church, you know. And uh, she said, as we hugged, she said, Pastor, it's okay. You need to do this. So they let me go. They released me. And at our, as, as, as a fellowship voted and we had kind of a dedication time, part of our church family was there to say, we believe this is right. And that meant the world, because they weren't in this, I couldn't do it. And they said, you can have our pastor, is what they said. And so because of that, this is what we've been doing, humbled, overwhelmed, but grateful for opportunities to serve our fellowship of churches. Uh, Sandy worked in the bookstore. She's now the dean of women, something God has prepared her for to, be, to love to do. Uh, the IRBC... The Iowa Association of Regular Baptist Churches began in 1935. There are currently 94 churches. We've lost six of them in six and a half years. Two of them to be unaffiliated. Four of them have closed their doors. And, and there are others that are at a tipping point that that could happen soon. We're working with a few other Baptist churches outside of our fellowship that are looking for assistance, counsel, help, encouragement, and a couple of them are interested in coming into the fellowship and uh, that's part of what we do to looking for be part of something bigger than themselves. Since we started, a lot of what we do is work with search committees as they pastors resign or retire, and the pulpit committee goes, huh, I didn't sign up for this, and kind of the deer-in-the-headlight look. There's not much of a process in the Bible how to do this, so we walk them through a workshop that I got from Joe Hayes, who tweaked a little bit. And since we started, six and a half years ago, 42 of our churches have called a new senior pastor. That's a lot. And so we work with them. We're delighted to walk them through and the process of calling a pastor. Eleven are currently looking. We have nine area fellowships, very active on a local level as part of the strength of our fellowship. We have two teen events back on track in the GO Conference. We have four retreats that we, that we put on. One is a marriage conference in, in, the, in, 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 in February that will now be an IRBC fellowship event, the Refresh pastor's retreat, it's really refreshing. Encourage your pastor to go. Have the church pay for him to go. And it's, it's a, it's, thank you, Stephen, for getting that going. Daniel, for keeping it going. It is truly refreshing. About 25 couples come, 50 people get together to talk about life and ministry. It's, it's just great. And then there are the men's and ladies retreat, now called Women's Renew and Men's Revive, coming up and yes, there's still a go. There's still a go. It was tentative, so we're still a go. So you can go online to the camp's website and sign up. And uh, as of today, they're a go. That could change. We're hoping and praying it doesn't. But uh, we can handle 350 people in here, up to 200 people uh, live streaming in the bottom of Jensen. And that's our goal. So please sign up, encourage people to come. We're looking for 100 new friends of the fellowship. 
the funding for what we do comes from local churches and put us in the mission budget, gifts from individuals. We're encouraging individual members to invest in what we're able to do to help churches, to be out on Sundays and minister to them uh, to focus. So I pray that you would maybe consider being a friend of the fellowship and go to the iarbc.org website. And you can sign up to be a friend of the fellowship. And if 100 people gave $10 a month, we would have all of our needs met and do so many more things. So I encourage you to invest individually into our fellowship. And lastly, our focus is on revitalization. And when I started the search committee, they said, what do you think is the greatest need of our fellowship? And I said, well, I, I think I have a guess, but I, it would be presumptuous to know before I'm in the churches. And it became evident quickly that there has been a great decline since the middle of the last century, post-revivalism of declining churches and declining in numbers and declining in vibrancy and loss of a great commission focus and not a lot of people getting saved. And so over the time, it's been a big decline. And so we're just focusing on the need to have churches vibrant and healthy again and rethinking how we do life and ministry and a revitalization ministry and partnering with, with other mission agencies and churches working together and having a Zoom meeting tomorrow afternoon with a couple of guys to talk through a church. And uh, th that's our focus, that God would breathe new life into our churches and grasp the significance of getting the gospel in a personal, relational, intentional way. And so that is our focus, and uh, it's overwhelming. But God is turning the ship around. There's, there's an increased focus on the making of disciples and what real ministry is by investing in people, not just having programs. And, and God is stirring our hearts to that. So it's, it's overwhelming, but I'm grateful to be a part of that, what God is doing. So that's a little bit of what we do. Uh, we're humbled and, 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 and thrilled that God has allowed us to do this. We're grateful for all of that. So with that in mind, let's kind of switch gears a little bit and go to our text and just a little bit of review uh, before we go into the final point today. And I know we covered a lot of material. We crammed a lot of the sense into some full sessions and you can get sensory overload, like, ah, and appreciates Pastor Stephen at the end picking one thing that connected with him. And there would be many we can feed on later, but try it as you think about all that we've talked about. Let's just look at the four action points. We'll finish the last one today. And maybe something under those that said, I'm going to start there. And it picks something significant and meaningful, and I'm going to start there. We've talked about taking responsibility for your family. We talk about husbands and wives working together. How could we do better at that? About not provoking our children to anger. Um, have, have we done that? We talked about bringing them to maturity as the goal, and then the process, a two-pronged approach of uh, training them and counseling them to bring them into maturity. And so the last one today is we need to walk with God. So look at our text in Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll attempt to land the plane over the next 30 minutes or so. But let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, the in the Lord implies believing children, and so the phrase in means within the realm, within the sphere of their relationship with Christ. So all of it is done within the realm of that. For this is right, or righteous, not just pragmatic, but it is the righteous thing to do. Honor, value, treasure your father and your mother. You can teach your kids to do that, to value and treasure their mom. And this is the first commandment with the promise, 
that it may go well with you and you live long in the land. Fathers, parents, moms and dads, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead of that, bring them up, bring them to maturity in the training and the counsel of the Lord. That's the phrase. And that's a significant phrase. He could have stopped without that, but this is all to do with our relationship with Christ, how that's fleshed out in our family. It's not just secular, pragmatic things that work. Now, the Bible does work. <laughs> it is relevant and produces fruit, but this is within the realm of my walk with God. And so I'm going to just kind of flesh that out a little bit today as we finish up and land the plane. Uh, what do we mean by walking with God? Well, first of all, you have to trust Christ as your Savior. That's where you walk begins. You know, I, there are unsaved parents that raise good kids. I mentioned my, my nephews, Sandy's sister's boys. They are good kids. They're responsible. They're good mom and dad. And their kids are good kids. They're delightful. They're polite. They're not saved, but they're decent kids. But they'll go to hell without Christ. And so as we, as we think about engaging, investing in our children, or maybe older women teaching younger women, investing in others that are coming behind us. Because if, if, if this just stops here, we've missed the point. This is you invest in your kids and invest in others. This cannot stop here. But as we do that, it's, it's possible to skip the first step, which is the gospel. And so we have to always start with that and assume nothing. So when you meet someone and they visit to church, you start with their relationship with Christ. And then you go from there. We always assumed people were lost unless we knew otherwise. Uh, that was true of us. People assumed we were saved and we weren't. And every year as Sandy works as the dean of women and the students come in from different backgrounds and homes and they begin to counsel and, and talk about moms and dads and friendships and boys, you know, all the stuff and classes and even how to plan their time. She says, would you want to do a study with me for about four weeks about what it means to know Christ? And they'll say, sure. And so she walks them through this good tool that we have from Hal Miller years ago called our John Studies. It's a four-week evangelistic study that anyone could do with someone to walk them through to see if they know they're saved or not. And you, there's available on our website. I encourage you to download them and use them and ask people a question. Would you be interested in doing a study with me to see about if you know Christ or not? And she has led several girls to Christ in her office. It has to be, and, and that ama it's amazing how much that fixed. <laughs> and she could talk about working with mom and dad and all this, but until they know Christ, that's the first step they have to take. And Paul said of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15 was the gospel. So I, I, need, I need to challenge you today. Maybe you're like us. Maybe you're like Cornelius who had a heart for God, he gave alms, he prayed, had, had, a, had a heart for the things of God and wanted someone to come, but he wasn't saved. It's a humbling thing to think about. I fought it and battled it till God broke me. Don't fight it anymore. That's where your walk begins. And it'll change everything. Your destiny, your heart, the indwelling of the Spirit, the capacity to reflect God in your family and your kids, it changes a lot. It's called um, redemption and transformation. I want to challenge you to, to just humbly think about, was there a time in your life when you came to Christ that was definitive and transformed your life, and there's fruit for that. 
And if not, just take care of that and talk with someone. It's pretty simple. Just accept that we're sinners and unable to work ourselves to heaven. Believe in Jesus as your Savior and call upon him to save you. And he will save you. As an older person who fought it and battled it, uh, there's a sense of great relief to know that I now knew I was going to heaven. That changed everything. So this of the Lord is talking to believing parents. These are the Ephesians, are brothers. They're saved, spirit-filled people. And so these principles apply to that person. And, and so you need to come to Christ, trust him as your savior. As you work with other parents struggling with their marriage, maybe they've never come to Christ. They have to begin with the first step in the journey. So don't skip that step with yourself or someone else. Begin at the beginning, and either through the study will confirm in their hearts that they are genuinely born again, or convict them that they haven't. And so it's a great tool, encourage you to use it, but the first walking with God is trusting Christ as your Savior. The second one is take ownership of your walk with God. Now that you know him, uh, we talked about as we raise our kids that God is sovereign, he has to work, we have to invest as stewards, and they have to own it. They have to decide and choose to honor and obey and to walk with God. So I just want to go back to Deuteronomy 6 again, and I encourage you as, you as you go forward from here, and like I said, a lot to process, just grab a hold of those half a dozen scripture texts and the whole book of Proverbs, and just immerse yourself in them. It's amazing the impact of the word to just over time transform how you think and how you conduct yourself. It does affect how you live. We get to be thinking biblically and acting biblically. So this is one of those texts. I want to look at it here a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Moses commanded to teach this new generation that, had, that it didn't, didn't come out of Egypt and give them the second law giving. Deuteronomy means second law giving. So it says in verse 4, here... O Israel, the Lord the God, Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words shall that command you shall be on your heart. They had to listen to the voice of one that God had put over them. They had to hear the Shema is to pay attention. And so they listened and said, These have to be, you have to own this. They have to own their knowledge of God, what they believe about him, the Lord of God is one. In a polytheistic culture, that was the watershed issue, and there's more behind it, obviously, but you have to own your knowledge of God and your affection for him. You have to love him. And it has to at some time be yours. As a new believer, we are taught and discipled, people invest in it, but at some point, that has to be what's in your heart. You have to own it. Your knowledge of him and affection of him, and it has to be yours. You have to own your convictions and your walk with God. You know, Paul told the, the believers in Philippi to, to work out their own salvation. And his absence talked about the young man going off and not wanting his mom. Yeah, who would want that mom to show up at basic training? But he said, even more in my absence... Work out your own salvation. And so as you raise your kids, you can't always be there. And we told our kids growing up, we will see a lot, but we can't see everything. But God always sees that. And Sandy's pretty creative about seeing what happened, but she's not God. I mean, God can see. And so they, they have to own it. And, 
They, they have to make it part of their life, their knowledge of God, their affection for him, and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Make it yours, own it, and make it real. You have to have, take ownership of your walk with God. Let us see. You have to teach them his word. This is the well-duh, but teach them his word because you become, and it goes on to say, and then after you made this yours, then you teach these diligently to your children. And so the investment of the word of God, Paul talked to Timothy's mother and grandmother and their faith that he embraced, he owned it, and then from a child, from infancy, they told him the scriptures that, that gave him wisdom and brought him to salvation. And so we, we, we know this, that we take them, we, we teach them his word. Um, you become God's mouthpiece for them. You become his voice for them. The authority rests with him, and you're just telling them what God wants them to know. Children are a heritage of the Lord. In some sense, they're his entrusted to you. He created them. He longs to redeem them. And he wants to use them for his glory. And so he's entrusted us. So he speaks through you. And when we, and I'll, I'll get ahead of myself. I'll just hold that thought for a second. But we when teach him his word. And as fundamental Baptists and as part of a fundamental Baptist movement, when our churches came out of the Northern Baptist Convention back in the 1930s, they had fought modernism and liberalism and communism and all of the ism to separate from apostasy to focus on the Savior, to, to focus on people getting saved, and to cling to the Scriptures. That was the beginning of our movement that still perpetuates today. And so we've always been pretty good at teaching the Word of God from our pulpits, our curriculum. That's the litmus test. Are we teaching them the Word of God? It is central. I go up in a church, uh, a Lutheran church, where this was over there. And another one was over here. Central was an altar. Furniture matters. The sacraments were supposed to be some saving element through baptism and through communion. Uh, we're saving elements in that. And so that wasn't true. And then we came, we came to Christ and the altar was gone the lectern was gone, was central, was the preaching of the Word of God. And we loved that. And said so that is part of our heritage now is entering the stream of Baptist fundamentalism. We were known for loving and teaching, making central the Word of God. And we still do. And so we teach them His Word. It's just imperative that we teach them His Word. And, you know, we were just naive enough to, to believe as new believers that God would honor the application of his word to the life of our children. Now, our job was to know it, understand it, seek the Spirit's guidance to apply it, to balance the right elements into making a decision. We just believe that God would honor the application of his word. And so we must teach them his word diligently, constantly we teach them his word. Letter D, we have to take them to his word. Now, it seems similar. It's a little bit different. This is beyond maybe the teaching time, which should happen all of the time. And when there's an offense or there's a new something to teach, we take them to the word and we say, let's see what God says about this. It's part of teaching, but I think it's 
there's an interesting difference here. We teach them, we instruct them, then we take them to it to cover an offense or something new to teach them. Uh, kids growing up, they, they're just unkind. <laughs> Our kids, you know, they pick and they fight over the silliest things, and then we grow up and adults do it too. And Ephesians 4.32 was great for that. So there was this bickering, this nitpicking, this intentional digging, you know. And we would say, let's go to God's word and see what he says about this. We take Ephesians 4.32 and say, be ye kind. Was that kind? No. Was that tenderhearted? No. What does God want you to do? Be forgiving. Who's been offended here? My sister. Who else? God. Who else? My mom and dad. Let's ask forgiveness. And why do we do that? Because God in Christ forgave me. There's a lot of content. And you take them, and when they're younger, don't just quote it. Open a Bible and say, let's see what God has to say about that. That's how you take them to the Word. And now later, as they get older, you can quote it to them and, and pull up your phone. But when they're younger, let them see that this is the authority. You want Him to be the authority in their life. You want them to deal with Him and do business with God because you're just His mouthpiece. You're not making this stuff up. And they could think that maybe mom and dad are just kind of making this up as they go. And the authority ends with them. No, God gave me a stewardship to train you. So you make them do business with God. That was life-changing for us. Part of the walking by the way and all this and teaching them is taking them to the Word. That has a huge impact on them to read these verses. And as we've done John studies with people, a lot of them were visitors to church and offered to do a study with them and we say, do you want, to, you want to do a study with us and we'll come to your house and we'll go through four weeks of what it means to be born again. Would that interest you? And, and they have often said, you would do that? Their concept of a pastor is behind a pulpit wearing a coat and tie or something and never investing in people's life in someone's home. We go to their home, go to our home, go through the study, which gives, brings out sin and Christ and salvation and the new birth. And they would say, you would do that? We said, absolutely. And so we begin our study. And I introduced, said, you know, when you read a question and you look up with the verse and get an answer, God is talking to you. We don't say it that way, but this is his word. And they say, that is so cool. I want you to hear his voice, not my opinion. And I believe there's this power. The, the Bible is self-authenticating. We defend it. We contend for it. We, 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 we preach it. But God authenticates himself to an open heart. And I want God to talk to them. You do the same with your kids. Takes you out of the battle, out of the resentment. Your, your business is with him. I'm just the mouthpiece. I'm just the channel. I'm just the vessel. But you have to do business with God here. And that carries greater weight than just telling that was wrong, that was sinful. And it was. Let's see what God has to say about that. That is huge in having a bigger impact on your kids. So take them to his word. The next one. Talk of him everywhere you go. The text continues. We will teach them diligently in Deuteronomy 6. And talk of them, talk of these things, my 
knowledge and theology of God, my affection for him, and all that comes from that. You talk of them when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, and you bind him on your forehead. The word of God is everywhere, but you talk of him everywhere you go. Every occasion is deserving of some conversation about God. And so we, we, if we learn that process, we learn that that's we teach them the word. And Jesus taught in parables and taught them the word of God. But I want to add something, what else we talk about besides just the word of God that I think we have missed as, I think, fundamental Baptist. I want to bring you to Psalm 78. There's another aha moment when God opened this scripture to us. This is, this is significant. Did I say it's a big deal? This is life-changing. Look with me in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 78. We understand we have to teach them the Word of God and take them to the Word and talk about the Word of God in the course of life as it, it reflects itself in things that come up and it makes it real and genuine and constantly teaching. But we have missed this. Psalm 78. This is at the heading of this. My Bible says this. It says, tell the coming generation. What should we tell them? There are five generations here. Be impacted by truth. I would like my children's 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 children to walk with God. So Jesus comes. Nothing else would satisfy me. I know they have to own it, but I have to teach them. So it says, give ear to my people. Again, listen up. This is really important. To my teaching, incline your ears, lean into the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, which implies that if we don't tell them, it'll be hidden. But tell to the coming generation the glorious works of of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, pointed a law. This is the word of God written and scribed in Scripture. We commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope and confidence in God and not forget the what? the works of God, but keep his commandments, which is the word of God, and they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. We do a great job most of the time in teaching them the word of God. But have we shown them the works of God and the wonders of God, the things that he's doing in history and my life? We have to show them the hidden hand of God at work. This was life-changing for us. So as you teach them, as you walk by the way, constantly bringing Scripture to bear and pointing out these truths, don't just make it the Word of God. Show them the wonders of God. His mighty deeds and His works. And if we don't, they will not put their confidence in him because God will just be limited to a book. He'll be words on a page. This is more than that, but God is more than his word. It's what he's doing. This word tells us what he's doing, and so it tells us about all of his works. 
what he did in history, in the scripture, in the global scale today, and what he's doing in my life this week. And if I don't show them, they will be hidden to them. To show them to see the hidden invisible hand of God orchestrating life and event. And that will excite them. Because God will be real to them. Ezra got it. The good hand of our God was upon us. Protected our kids, moved in the heart of the king, funded the rebuilding of the temple. That was God's work. I want to show you what he just did. That resonates with our children. God is alive and well and working, and we have to show them that to teach them talk of the works of God. Sandy sent me a text yesterday, and she got her diamond back. And she told me that she cried when the lady handed it to her. They cleaned it up, and it looked better than new. And the little lady said, that's okay. It's fine. She said, you know, look what God did. We knew that God was not bound to find the diamond. We, we would have to be content if we didn't. And life is bigger than that. It represents a marriage that nothing can take away from us. But God has mercy did a wonderful thing. And everywhere she goes, she says, look what God did to find my diamond. It's been a great encouragement to people in, that are struggling with something. God cares about things. I figured years ago, if God can make an axe head swim that was borrowed... He can find little ins insignificant. We taught that to our kids early. He said, if God can make an axe head swim, so we prayed about everything that was lost, we prayed for. Some were found, some weren't. We learned contentment and joy when it was found. But little Addie, you know, she just, she's three and a half. What do you like about Dora County? Well, I like the rocks and the beach, feeding the goats. It's a great little farm. And God found Grandma's diamond. She might be old enough to never forget that. At the age of three, you can kind of remember significant. That was a big deal. She saw us pray. She saw God provide. That was a work of God. It's a wonder and a great deed that we told our granddaughter that she might tell her children yet to be born. God is at work. I read his word, but... Man, he's working. Our church uh, was a pillar church at one time and declined over post-revivalism and went from 800 people to 100 people and, and the school left and some hard feelings and we carried on and, and, and God called our son. Danny was at the church for lots of years and he was interim and shepherding and has work cut out for him to see the church unified again. And God blessed what we did, he gave us good deacons and a good heart of people and brought again a sense of unity that just wasn't there for a long, long time. We decided to sell our building. We don't need 90,000 square feet anymore. And so we sold it to the church, to the school that left. They needed room for the high school. That was tricky. <laughs> Hard feelings from time ago, and God brought unity and grace and reconciliation and a 95% vote to sell the building back to the school. We leased back the auditorium and offices so we didn't have to move. They didn't charge us and we stayed. And so, in a sense, God forces children to get along. 
And God did a great work of unity. And so we began to look for property. Realtor came up with nothing. So a couple of our guys just began to drive around East Des Moines and see what they could find. And their hap was to light on Brook Landing. Remember the story of Ruth? She just happened. We know that God directed him. So one of the guys came back and said, I just went to East Des Moines over by Altoona, and there was a, a development, a housing, and seven acres called a church site on a board. Some houses were built, and it said church site. And I said, we need to look into this. And so he brought the news back, and we talked to the developer. He said, yeah, when I put this development together, a church approached me and said, can we build here? And he said, yeah. And then they, they backed out, so he just left it. He said, I haven't even promoted it. It's just been sitting here. Just, I just have ignored it. And he said, we need to talk. I said, yeah, we need to talk. <laughs> and so he began to meet with, with Danny and the leadership from the church. And, the, and this unsaved developer, he says, I love your church. He's never been to church. He just met the leadership. He said, I, I really want you here. And so we worked out a deal to buy the property, and we were going to negotiate down. He said, how about this? We didn't have to negotiate. That was the price we were going to negotiate down to. And we said, okay. He said, how about if I donate a portion of every lot I sell to your building fund? He said, that'll work. <laughs> this is Cyrus reincarnated, you know. Go build the building, and I'll fund it, you know. So we... We put together building plans and figured what it was going to cost and kind of more than we thought. So we had a capital campaign and God worked to give generous giving from our people. Still a little bit short and wondered what to do and said, we don't want to give up this land. We hadn't officially purchased it yet. So we need to go talk to the developer. His name is John and see what we could do. So the, le the leadership went to talk to John and John said, I really want your church here. Let me see what I can do. He came back later and said, how about this? How about if I fund the building, the building of your choice with your contractor, and then you just buy it from me? We said, that'll work. He became our bank. Now, he has all the headaches of overseeing the construction. <laughs> right? God is good. That was a work of God. I tell it everywhere I go. That's a wonder. And we tell it to our children. That is what lasts generations. They will forget what? The works of God. So as you talk of him everywhere you go, we give them the word of God and we talk of the works of God. Uh, letter F, take them with you. What I mean by that is you're discipling your children. You are investing in them as a mentor. And discipleship it basically attaching yourself to a person and then mimicking them and going everywhere. You go there, I go there. You go here, I go here. I want to mimic. And Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So we are discipling them by, and, and let them attach themselves to you in life and ministry. So as you go to hospitals, right? To visit church members that are sick, right? You do that, right? Not just a pastor, right? What do you say? I don't, you just say, I love you. Can I pray for you? They don't want answers. You don't even have them. You can do that. Take your kids with you. Watch mom and dad praying with a church member that's sick in the hospital. We took them to funerals, talked about death. When they were this big, our daughter, our granddaughter Lily, when my dad passed away six years ago, he came to know Christ as an older adult. 
She sat there at the end of the receiving line and said, this was my grandpa. This is his body, but he's in heaven. He's not here. That was part of the greeting line. Don't be afraid to take your kids to funerals. They can handle it. They can learn. It's an empty shell. He's with Jesus. We took them to, hmm, to lock units. <clears throat> we had a lot of problems in South Des Moines with people on drugs and addictions, and I visited a number of them in the course of ministry. And we took our kids to some. They let us in. They probably wouldn't do that anymore. And they saw teenagers whose brains were fried. We had to talk about drugs and about addictions. And wow, that was life-changing. So take, we took them with, you, with us on these John studies we do in people's homes. We took our kids. They played with their kids or they learned school or just played games. And couples to this day remember those days when our kids were there during their John study and the follow-up discipleship. Our family was there when we were able and they love our kids to this day. You show them how it's done. As you engage in ministry, do it with them as best you can. Take them with you. Don't be fearful that they can't handle this. There's some cases the kids should not be there. I get that. But they can be there when you visit people in the hospital. To be there at funeral. Don't leave them home and say, oh, they can't handle it. No, they're tougher than that. And teach them. So take them with you. Liturgy, take this seriously. And by that, I don't mean scowl at them all the time. And look grumpy all the time. And like be harsh and say, some people think serious is just being harsh with the kids. It isn't true. It's not that. What it means is that you understand that this is a big deal. That there's a lot at stake. Generations yet to be born that God has entrusted us and we have to be diligent and purposely do this and not just take it for granted and leave them to themselves. This is a big deal. But as you do that, enjoy your children. God designed them to be entertaining to somehow pay back all we invest in them. They're free entertainment. They are hilarious, even when they're disgusting. Danny was probably, I think, 18 months living in Ketchikan in a trailer. We told him to put away his toys. He marched over and said, good. He had no argument. Off he went. Then something didn't sound right. We walked around the corner. There he was at the toilet, dropping his toys in one at a time. <laughs> I got why that was fun. You know, plunk is more fun than just thud. We, and so we, were, we weren't as clear as we thought we were. So we had to rethink, you know, be clearer the next time. And as Angela and Danny, two years apart, she was kind of trimmer. He was kind of a, like a fence post. So they weighed about the same, though she was much more agile. You know, when she was three and he was one, he's kind of tipsy. And she'd have fun poking him like, like tractor tipping. <laughs> There's a sibling tripping. She'd poke and pull, off he'd go. He'd laugh, you know. And we said, this is not good. This is taking advantage of your brother. And so how? I said, we told her to stop. Spanked her a couple of times. I said, you know, this is the deal. When he's old, old enough to sit in you, we're going to let him sit on your face. Now, we thought that through and meant it. So when he got older, a little more agile with his weight, he sat on her face. And we laughed hilariously. Remember Proverbs 1? You wouldn't have listened. I will laugh at your calamity. <laughs> right? 
this is hilarious. And she screamed bloody murder, and he grinned till the cows came home. And we loved every moment of sweet vindication. But we warned her. That was a hilarious moment. Now, Christmas gifts are tricky with kids, you know, at different ages. And back in that day, you know, Sesame Street was big, and Muppets were big. And so she just fell in love with Miss Piggy. So we ordered one from Seattle, came up on the plane, and so we got her a Miss Piggy doll with a purple sequin dress. The most grotesque doll I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) But that's what she wanted. And she always said, Miss Piggy, I love her. I said, oh, no. (laughs) This is disgusting. Um... Our grandson, Daniel, we take bike rides on the high trestle trail. He had a little bit of a list. He said the high trestle trail is what he did. And we actually did go over the bridge later, but we took a ride out of Ankeny, came to the first little bridge over a creek. He said, Papa, is that the high trestle trail? No, it's a little bigger than that, D, just a little bigger. Our grandson, Judah, who plays the violin, also likes to vacuum. We're okay with that. He loves machines. And so in our camper, he's vacuuming every morning diligently. They're hilarious. So seriously, it doesn't mean we don't enjoy them and laugh with them and be entertained by them. It just means this is a big deal. We have to be purposeful. And the last thing, we trust God for this. Except the Lord build the house, the labor in vain that build it. All right? Bind a branch without him, we can do nothing. Do nothing. We can't bear fruit without him and be connected with the vine. And so as we labor to understand our stewardship and pray that God would help us apply it to life in the right balance, we pray like crazy that God would do a work that only he can do. That he would make them own it, that he would bring the salvation, he would grow. We pray for wisdom. We pray for the spirit to work. We pray for strength and endurance and patience because they will drive you nuts and you will... Give in to impatience like I have done many, many times and regretted that. For balance, to be creative, to bear fruit for his glory, that we trust God for this. In closing, it's a lot to process. But there's a lot at stake. So take something today and take the notes with you and say, by the grace of God, I'm going to begin my journey today here, because this is the next leg of our journey, right? Whatever we, where we are. And, and say, I'm going to do this by the grace of God. This is ultimately for his glory, not just that we would say we were good parents, right? Because they're a heritage of the Lord. He longs to save them and use them and invest in people's lives long after we're gone, to be a legacy to generations to come. It is for his glory and not just our, our good It's all for him. Let's pray that God would use us in investing in our children and others as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very, very special time together. I have been greatly challenged, greatly encouraged just through this fellowship, this time in the word. Help us, Lord, to invest well, to trust you for this, and maybe teach it to somebody else, that you be glorified in the lives of our families and our children for generations to come. In Jesus' name, amen.